Hello and welcome. The following podcast deals with an issue that I see all too commonly when training submissives and slaves, that of a lower than normal sense of deservedness, which limits their growth and their ability to bond in a harmonious relationship with you. All too often when a dominant chooses to enter a relationship with someone with persistent negative self-talk and who intentionally and consistently sabotages themselves and their growth, that dominant or partner can quickly become entangled in trying to treat that person. Rather than warn you off them completely, which is not always the best course of action, depending on the severity of the issue, they may be very compatible with you except for this one problem, I'll present a list of powerful and effective treatment suggestions for dealing with this centered around a three-pronged attack strategy, dealing with unconscious reformatting, imbuing them with an empowering personal philosophy, and some conscious tools to tie it all together. Be very careful about taking on their emotional problems and recognize that no one can really help another, only provide them with the resources they need, and sometimes the reinforcement to help themselves. These resources have been designed to minimize the risk of you being drawn into their issues while giving you powerful and effective options and tools to help those you care about. Even a friend can recommend the recordings, books, and fun conscious games in the following podcasts. You don't have to own them to recommend a great book, though you must be on guard and reinforce yourself against these same issues. If you have any questions, you can always get in touch with me at mindkink.net. You'll find a list of recommended resources in the podcast description. The idea that you can take some level of responsibility for their outcome, but you can never take an entire level of responsibility for their outcome. Because, I mean, unless your goal is to create a dependency, which it may be your goal. I've known several hypnotists that, uh, that are big on the whole, like, binding someone to them forever to the point where if they even think about leaving, they curl up into a ball in the corner of the room and cry, you know, but you don't want to create a dependency because, well, I, I believe that you can't achieve, I believe that I can't achieve the highest level of slave girl performance and development without going through a process of making them independent first and then building on top of that strong foundation of independence to create a tightly forged interdependence and that's kind of the, the model and the guiding principles that I use in all of my relationships is you know like yeah as, as Mark talks about a lot it's easy to work with people that are low self-esteem but I want someone to be a full and complete human being because when they are a full and complete human being they have so much more they can add to my life there's entire vistas of things that open up that are possible if that person is a full and complete human being. Yeah, you know, like she, she brought into the relationship an absolute wealth of knowledge and experience, but more than that, she brought in the fact that she was a complete and full human being before I even met her. Right. So she was able to take me to the theater and, and introduce me to, you know, Dita Von Tees and, and all these other things that have had such a huge impact on my life and how I how I've refined what I want from life over time. Like, as I was saying to you before, um, my dream in life is to create girls like Dita. Not that are, are carbon copies of her, but that have the same rough level of skill and development. And, you know, that woman is just, yes. And that's the goal. That's what I want to create. It's, um, and I wouldn't have been able to have that understanding if it wasn't for... So I'm not giving her credit for it, but I'm, I'm definitely saying these are the things that a woman that is independent can add to your life. What you're talking about with your girl, which I say your girl, but what I mean is you didn't make her that way. Yeah, you're not responsible for the way that she feels. It's, um, it's like all these things close off, you know, and, and you can't, you just can't get there because they're not there yet. And they are what's, well, more importantly, their sense of deservedness is what holds the relationship as a whole back. And I've given a lot of thought to how to boost that. And the prescription that I described to you is, and you've just, you've just jogged my memory as to one other thing to add in as well. And the, it's, it's in the required reading for submissives list on my website. Okay. 
But um, the book that I think, out of the two, there's only two books on the list because you want to keep it short and because most of their training is going to be modular anyway. But the one that would have a very strong effect for women that identify as submissive or that want to be useful and empowered submissives, because the more useful someone is to you, that's, that's a good thing in my book, care and nurture for the submissive. Um, but throughout the whole book is just woven this this metaphor of the submissive as a flower. And it, it actually extends to, I'll just grab my Kindle and I'll pull up some of the chapter titles for you and you'll know exactly what I mean, right? Because she's worked it into every... Yes, and in, a, in an even deeper sense, the analogy that I often use is that you are the garden. Specifically, the man is the garden. And I go into detail on this, on this in the training course, I believe, but... Um, you know, it's the analogy is, well, this, the better the boundaries are that you have established with that person, the walls around the garden that keep out the, the wild animals, those are the boundaries of your relationship that you establish. Concept that come from pickup artistry, they call them shit tests. And it's like, it's very similar, but it's a DS equivalent of that. So a shit test is essentially when a woman acts out, yeah. but does it with the unconscious or conscious motivation to make you respond in a way that demonstrates your fitness in a Darwinian sense, uh, your fitness, fitness, yeah, or lack of fitness to be in, in a continued relationship with her. So it's like she's misbehaving like a child. This is where women get really offended. Um, they misbehave like children because they want to feel those boundaries. And they want to feel that they're not the center of your universe and that they aren't the most important thing in your life and that you will do what's necessary as their as the person whose role, the role that you have in their life to, to, to act in a certain way. Like passing a shit test is a little bit context sensitive because a boyfriend will pass a shit test slightly different from the way a dominant would because it depends on the nature of the relationship that you have with the woman. Yeah, sometimes when, it's, when you don't have an actual relationship with them, you have to be a little bit more flexible and a little bit more patient because you don't have the leverage yet as their partner to be able to push back in the way that you really want to, and you might even need to, but so like just reading off the chapter headings, you know, thorns in the garden, dealing with your past introduction, the well-tended garden, grow together, finding your support network, reaching for the sun, pushing your limits, cracks in the sidewalk, keeping your private matters, private fertilize and fluff, keeping your relationship fresh and like, I love the analogy that she uses. I think it's incredible, and I think it's so empowering. It's so simple. It's so elegant. For slave training, I use a diamond analogy, which I think I have a written copy of down. I, I put a, you know, like 2,000 words down on paper once years ago on the old website, and uh, I'm still transitioning things across as I find them. But, yeah, the, the process of training a slave girl is like uh, taking a diamond, and I usually tell this story about a farmer who found a diamond in his field, and went back, sold everything that he had, bought the field, unearthed the diamond, took the diamond home. And that, that, that was, that's, the, that's the process that a lot of submissives yeah. really strongly identify with. Plus, a lot of them really love dogs. So now I often use the term forever home. Like, yes. So that's a term that I use that is, that is so powerful. So powerful. Because a submissive doesn't want to find her next dominant. She wants to find her forever home. And, and so many of these healthy submissives identify with dogs as well as cats. So they're familiar with the concept of forever homes. Like the, the thing that people talk about with dogs is you don't want to find a home for this dog. You want to find a forever home for this dog. And they, they understand that and they identify with that on such a deep primal level that those two words used in combination are just so, so powerful. They don't want to find the next dominant. They want to find the forever dominant. The, the man that's going to take care of them and love them and feed them and, you know, not in a dependent kind of way, but that's the way they want to feel. Like, they want to feel like an animal that's well taken care of. When, when dogs are stressed or unfulfilled, because they are, I don't want to say entirely dependent, but they're, they're essentially your dependent. They're a dependent of, right. on you. When they're unhappy and sad and, you know, you can look at things in their environment because dogs are naturally, nine time, or, you know, 99 times out of 100, they're naturally quite happy. If they're fed and they're watered and they're provided with all the things that they need to be happy, then they'll be happy. 
yeah, dogs have only a very limited amount of control they can exert, exert over their surrounding environment because they're dogs. It's not like they can vote or anything, you know. And this is an analogy that, um, not an analogy, but it's, it's a concept that L.T. Morrison talks about when he's talking about total ownership in his book trilogy, The Devil in the Details, which is part of the required reading list for masters on the right. website. And it's the, uh, the phrase that you get an opinion... You just don't get a vote. So your pet can have an opinion. Your slave can have an opinion. But for someone that is totally fully owned and in a loving, consenting relationship where they have years of history and context and an established bond of incredible trust, you know, you, you don't get an opinion. You, you don't get a vote. You get an opinion, but you don't get a vote. That's one of the things that you know, a lot of women crave is they want someone to know them so well that that person knows what they really need without being told. And that's often the kind of slippery slope that leads very easily, so seductively into caretaking behaviors. And this is one of the things that I find is so beneficial about studying Robert Glover's work and, and putting his, and most importantly, putting his book into practice uh, and, and spending time with other men that are also putting his book into practice. Well, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Dr. Robert Glover. And uh, it's essentially a, a book slash workbook slash self-help program slash international network of men's groups that are all deal, that all deal specifically with this, uh, this patterns of behaviors that he calls nice guy behaviors. And one of the things that's often exacerbated by a DS relationship or by a dominant getting into a DS relationship with a submissive that needs help and that is dependent is this idea of caretaking behaviors. So, like, for example, one of the things that I teach my girls is that they need to ask for things. Actually, I had a really good conversation with someone recently about the use of altars and how, to, and how that person was using them. Um, and again, not to criticize anybody, but... I was talking with someone recently about altars and how one of the easiest mistakes to make with altars is they're so good at solving specific problems in the moment that oftentimes people forget to think about long-term consequences. And so dominants that care very much about their submissives will often install an altar that they can just snap that person into and then get an instant readout on how that person is feeling, right? Because, I mean, how many times have you wanted to know how someone's really feeling or what they're really thinking? Because you want to get in there and solve the problem. The issue there is right. that she hasn't asked you to solve the problem. You're almost right. trespassing in places that you don't need yeah. to be going in. And right. often what happens is when guys will be rejected in this, because it kind of comes across as nice guy behavior, it, it sort of implies that there's strings attached to it. I'll do this for you if you like me or go out with me or sleep with me or become attracted to me um right. guys will double down on that and they'll try really hard and if you're a hypnotist and a good one one of the one of the opportunities that presents itself is create an altar because it's a fairly complex technique and, and requires an intermediate level of skill and understanding to do right and what it does though is it it shortcuts the whole process of someone learning how to express themselves and kind of passes that off to a third party, which then gets to ride piggyback rent-free in their head. The downside, of, the downside of this is that they, the person, don't know when to recognize, they don't learn when to recognize that they aren't being communicative when they need to be. And they also don't learn how to articulate their thoughts and feelings. And right. so they literally never have the chance to learn because the dominant will just snap their fingers, bring out the altar, the altar will say, this is what's wrong. And then the dominant will go out of their way to fix it, even when the submissive didn't ask them to, and very often doesn't actually want them to. And then the dominant will sort of expect something subconsciously or consciously in return. And this is one of the patterns of behavior that Robert Glover talks about very early on in his book. It's called covert contracts. It's the idea that I'll do something for you. I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And then you get angry or some, or someone will get angry when that person doesn't behave in the way that they are expected to, even though this person was never even informed that this was part of the deal. The reason that they weren't informed that this was part of the deal is because that person knows with a very great likelihood that they wouldn't have consented to the deal. 
So what this normally manifests itself as in patterns of behavior is I will hold a door open for you or I will give you lifts or I will pay you money or I will help you with your groceries. I will listen to you talk about your day for hours and hours and hours and all the other guys that you want to fuck that aren't paying attention to you. And in return, you will become sexually attracted to me and have sex with me. But I won't tell you that that's the expectation because you would never let me do those things if you thought that's what I was going to get out of it because that's just not how attraction works. D'Angelo talks about how attraction is not a choice and it's probably one of the biggest concepts he's ever uncovered. Um, and Roosh V talks about this concept of um, sub-minute attraction or pre-one-minute attraction. Attraction that's caused by um, impact, looks, you know, behaviours, social proofing, different kinds of things like that. Almost feral, primal. Yeah, and um, so covert contracts, it's one of the manifestations of nice guy behavior that is so prevalent, but it's also a particular issue for dominance um, as well, because the slope the, to, to doing this is so simple. And, and I've noticed it particularly in hypnotists as well, because we have this incredible power that we can use that people don't know about. Yes, I can put the button in, and what the button does is it creates an entirely separate sub-personality that is two-dimensional inside that person's head that then uses up a constant amount of mental energy to sustain it every waking moment and every sleeping moment of that person's life. The side effects of this are in another recording that I'll put up on the website soon that I made ages ago, so I won't go back through them. But the, um, the issue there is just that... It sidesteps that whole process of getting that person to learn to be okay, and and this is kind of the this is kind of the the crux of the issue is you one of the ways that we can talk about consciously helping people is by teaching them how to articulate what it is that they actually want, and also helping to create a safe environment, a container for them to do that. So. Creating a container is really simple. Um, what you can do is, depending on the nature of your relationship, you can set aside a specific time or a specific mechanism for them to communicate with you in a totally unfiltered way. So one of the manifestations of this, and I borrow, I'm borrowing this from uh, Arcane from the Crow Academy, is that you keep a fetish journal. And so just telling your submissive to journal is one of the first things that a lot of dominants tell their submissive to do. But beyond that, they don't really keep one themselves. They don't know how to do it well. So keeping a fetish journal is a simplified subset of this that is maximally effective with, re with requiring a minimal amount of explanation. And it's just, they write down all their sexy, slutty, dirty, erotic thoughts and feelings and all the experiences that they have with you or with anyone else that are sexual or slutty or dirty or, or kinky in any way. It's not like they have to write down all the other things that happen in their day. They just write down all the fun stuff. Oh, it's a fetish okay. journal. And the only thing that goes in it are all the things that are, that are dealing with, you know, your relationship with them, but only the sexual kind of power exchange side of things. So you don't put in stuff like, today I woke up and then I went to work and then work was good. And then Brittany was a bitch again. God damn that girl. You know, it was, it's, it's just, right? Now, there's a couple of different ways you can facilitate the informational transfer once they've established a habit of, of writing in this journal. One of the ways to do it, and I prefer this, is I tell them that they can share with me whatever they want. I don't tell, the, I don't tell people, but I reserve the right to. I don't inform them of this. But if there's an emergency, I reserve the right to go through their journal. But what I want to do is encourage them to to, to begin to articulate to themselves first, and then to begin to articulate to trusted people like myself, and then to begin to articulate to the broader community. What it is that they really want, the things that really matter to them, only in a way that's safe for them, only expressing the level of vulnerability that they feel comfortable with. And you'll recognize a lot of these elements in deepening trance and responsiveness. So you, you're familiar with the concept of when you're hypnotizing someone, having them deepen themselves to the deepest level they feel comfortable with. Same deal. Yeah. Yep. Right, right. So you have them write down absolutely everything in their fetish journal, knowing that they will only need to share with you what they want to share with you. 
So what this usually looks like is in the past, I've had girls fill out a Google Documents doc, or some girls have preferred a physical book, and then they take a photograph of the physical book page and send the photograph to me. Uh, or they type it out on their phone or their computer and email it to me and I kind of archive it all, uh, tag it all with their name, you know. And, uh, no, no, I read it. Well, you're saying you do read it. I'm oh, saying there's an original copy that is full and complete. And the way I've found to do it best is that they send me the things they feel comfortable sharing with. But you need to emphasize that, and, and this is the sort of, this is like a building a trust relationship, is that, you know, you need to mention to them at least once, I usually do, is that, you know, if, if you're really worried about them, you'll go through their journal. But you're relying on them, until proven otherwise, to begin to communicate to you in this very specific niche that you have in the relationship, how to be honest with you and to get them to articulate first their desires to themselves and then their desires to you, a trusted person. This is very similar to what um, Glover talks about in his book. He talks about finding other men that are safe people that you can talk about your feelings with in a safe way and they won't judge you, right? And women, women do this as a matter of habit, but men need to be pushed a little bit to go out and look for that particular thing because it has value. And there's a whole process that he goes through for establishing that. But what you're essentially doing is you're saying, this is a bond of trust that I want to establish with you, my submissive. I am trusting you to tell me the things that are on your mind. Even if I don't like them, this is the other key part, is that you then have to not take responsibility for them. Their feelings are not your responsibility. It is their choice as to how they choose to respond to a situation. Their behavior is their responsibility. Okay, this, is, this is almost stuff that happens before you can really start training them and conditioning them. There's some overlap, but you need them to be able to take responsibility for their own life before you can take that responsibility away from them slash they can actually give that responsibility to you. Like, it's almost like you have to build them up before they can give it to you. So if they don't know what their limits are, then they have to investigate themselves and experiment experiment and explore with you. And I'll talk about a really useful exercise in a second for getting through that um, and creating a lot of trust really quickly. And I can't tell you what I need until I figure out what it is that I exactly. need. Exactly. And then right. once I figured that out, I'll write that down yeah, I can share. and I'll share it with you. And you want to emphasize the default is share everything with you. But if there's things that you're not ready to share with me yet, then you know that you can always share them with me sometime soon when you're feeling comfortable and safe. And you know that if there's ever an emergency and I'm concerned about your health or your safety, that I reserve the right to go through your journal and to use that information to make the best decisions for both of us. Because you trust me and I trust you. But I will never do that unless it's an absolute emergency. And I will always tell you if I'm going to do that. Always tell them before that you're going to do that. So it's not a surprise. Because you want them to be able to be as honest and as uncensored as possible in that recollection, that fetish journal. So that's another technique or tool that I've used. Uh, at one point I had a separate, I had a, a Gmail account that everyone was signed into. And uh, we used to use that for household tasks and calendars. And then under the Google Docs thing, everyone would have a different document. And that would, the difference would be the name. So the name of the person would be the name of the document. And that would be their yeah. fetish journal. And you just put the date down and then you write out the things that happened. And then you kind of, you know, rank it out of 10 if you like, or you can leave that bit off, but that's just a, it's more of an, an ordinary journaling thing. So that's one way of doing that, that I know works. And that's the way I, I approach the subject now for maximal effectiveness, because you want them to express them to begin to express themselves in an uncensored way as much as possible, because if they don't know what they want, they can't give it to you. They can't give those things, control over things to you, control over those aspects of their life. So, what you're doing there is you're kind of consciously working with them to improve their ability to articulate themselves. Right. Um, but you're also doing it in a way that's beyond the level of what a friend would be able to help them with because you're fucking them. So, so you can help them. Right. But again, the emphasis is always on, 
I am not your keeper. I am not going to take responsibility for your life. I am not going to, and this is where clear boundaries are really important. I'll talk about those in a sec. This is where clear boundaries are really important because a lot of submissives will, will throw themselves at your feet, which is, oh, it's so hot. But unless you, <laughs> unless you say, this is the area that I'm going to take responsibility over, and that's only what I'm going to take responsibility over, the default attitude of most submissives I've found is that you will take responsibility over it's a bit like organ donation here in Australia. It used to be an opt-in process, and now it's an opt-out process, from what I understand. Right. So it's like, it used to be, all right, so you will take responsibility for these three explicit things, and then everything else I know is my responsibility. However, somehow along the way, a lot of submissives come up with this idea that uh, all of a sudden, the things that you don't say you're going to be taking responsibility for are the only things that matter, and everything else belongs to you. And it will, because a lot of dominants don't have skills around setting personal boundaries, which is why Robert Glover's book is so foundational, and it's why it's first on the list. Because men need to learn how to set boundaries. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's about the mindset of the submissive as well. It's about um, the more dependent that someone is, just dependent in general, in the Covey model. The more dependent they are, the more likely they are to want to just throw it all at your feet. And you need to make sure that you're not facilitating their creation of a dependency with you. So obviously the only things that you can control directly are your own actions and behavior, right? And even then those are hard things to control because we're people, we're imperfect. You know, formed in God's image, but not the divine ourselves. So... (laughs) We are imperfect. That's why I always say you can choose. It might be too hard for you to do right now, but you will have a time in your life. You will be able to do this. You will grow and develop and become stronger until you can choose. So even if you feel like right now that you can't choose, accept that at some point now or in the future, you will be able to and that you always can. You just might not be able to right now, but you always can. That's... The, probably the best way to describe it is it's, you're trying to build them up a little bit um, without taking responsibility because there's a difference between teaching and training. You can teach them these concepts, but then it's their responsibility to put them into action. Or you can train them in these concepts and you can sit them down, plug them into the chair, you know, and, and take them into trance and guide them through the whole process and then constantly monitor them and reinforce the patterns of behavior. You know, that's the difference between teaching and training in this yeah. context. But. Hey. Boundary setting is really important and you as a dominant or a man need to know how to do it and stick to boundaries really before you can effectively teach your submissive. But that is one of the key things that you should teach your submissive is that A, it is okay to have boundaries and that having boundaries makes you a better person, a stronger submissive, a more capable boss. Um, I haven't done a lot of research yet. There's a couple things on my reading list around um, helping people to be able to say no to things. But that is another thing that I would definitely, I would teach them how to say no. And I've, I've developed exercises where you practice um, getting to know. Uh, it doesn't come across very well in, in words, but it's getting to N-O. So you kind of start a pattern of behavior. You, you want to, yeah. you sit down with them and you say, look, I want to do this. And then you negotiate out a little mini scene, a micro scene. You know, I want to stroke your breasts or I want to stroke down from your arm to your breasts. And I want you to say no when you want me to stop. Right. And what you're actually doing is you're creating an environment where this is the expected correct response. You know, shades of Mark Cunningham, the man's a genius. Uh, This is, you know, you want them to say no. You want them to articulate that no out loud, clearly, definitively and comprehensively. Not over the top, not scream it out, but just... The word no must be used. And then you practice by thanking them for their no. And then you switch roles. Now, what the the other part of this exercise that's really important to mention is that you, they set their boundary before you start. So you pick, so what, what happens is, um, you pick an activity that you want to do. Say you say, I'd like to touch my hand from your chin down to your breast. Right. And then they go, 
that sounds great with me, but in their head, what, what they are supposed to do is decide for themselves where they are going to get you to stop. And then once that person crosses that boundary, it might be the decollage area, or it might be as they brush against their nipple or as they, you know, as they touch the actual mass of the breasts itself, that's the boundary. And then that person is supposed to say no. And then you thank them graciously and generously and honestly for enforcing their, but you say, thank you for being honest. Thank you for expressing yourself. Thank you for guiding me. Thank you for sharing yourself with me. You know, like it's not hard to be grateful. Um, or it can be for some people, but it's, I don't have a lot of difficulty with it, but that's years of practice. And then you switch roles, right? Elements of something called the three minute game in this as well, which is an excellent, um, little game that I play. Oh God, all the time, at least once or twice a week. Uh, it's called the three minute game. It's by a woman called Betty Martin. I don't think she invented it, but I think she publicized it or popularized it. The whole point of the whole getting to know thing is that you pick an activity, you, you consent to it, you negotiate to it, and then the other person is supposed to be like practicing saying no and having that no received graciously. And you're practicing having that no received. And it's kind of like the what happened, what does it mean thing? Because when people hear no, you know, what happened? She said the word no is the objective, you know, response, right? What does that mean? It means that right now in this place, with the way that she's feeling right now, she would prefer not to do that, right? It does not mean I am a horrible person. I am a consent violator. I am an abusive partner. I am a horrible person for wanting to do those things. That's not what it means. So, you know, it's also those exercises kind of dovetail in really neatly with each other because a lot of guys will have problems. As soon as a girl says no, it's like, all right, I will put my clothes back on and I will never so much as look at you ever again. And it's like, well, that's not what she's saying. She's saying she's on her period, but is too embarrassed to talk about it. Well, I don't think I've encountered many examples of that. Well, I, again, also, I, I very much lean away from criticizing people that are just starting out. Like, I think enough people on the internet do enough criticizing of, you know, of men that are trying to figure things out in a very hostile environment with no help and instant criticism for any perceived failure or slight that I don't need to add to that noise. You know, it's, it's a fine line also as well between like being a submissive that knows her boundaries and just being a massive cunt. Um, you know, and it kind of comes down to what is reasonable. Like if, if you're leading someone on or you're giving them mixed messages or, you know, like if you're doing all the things in the dating dance that they indicate things are going well, and then all of a sudden you turn around and say, actually, I want something totally different. And if you don't immediately reorient to that as a guy and jump on board, all of a sudden you're basically the most oppressive patriarchal, you know, whatever. (laughs) It's like, there's going to be some element of emotional whiplash. If you think things are going really well with a girl and, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, actually my limit is I never sleep with guys on a first date. And it's like, well, she's not going to help you rationalize that as just a rule that she has from her past. that is arbitrary and has nothing to do with you. She's going to just expect you to be totally 100% supportive of it. And it's almost as though sometimes in, in the modern age that women use um, conversations around limits and boundaries as a kind of shit test. They're throwing them at you to see how you respond to that and to see how well you can manage your own emotions and your own expectations, which is really dangerous and really stupid and unfortunately really common. But there's such a fine line between it, between something that I'm genuinely uncomfortable with, but I'm working, uh, passionately to overcome. And I'd really like to do it with you at some point in the future. And, Here's a totally arbitrary restriction that I just invented. And I want to see how you respond to me yanking the cookie out from underneath your nose, inches from your face and saying, actually, I'd like to go home now. Like, are you going to get angry? Are you going to just roll over? Like what's, what's going to be your response? I think that's things get where things get blurry. But one of the things that you want to work on teaching your partner is how to say no to people. You're rehearsing in a safe, controlled environment where all the stimuli are taken into account and all the variables are controlled for that. It's okay to exactly. It's okay to say no. And it's, I'm going to reward you and I won't be negative about it. 
You know, I might struggle to be super positive about it, but I won't, you know, lash out at you or, you know, be, be vengeful or spontaneously end the relationship. That's, this is another one of those more conscious techniques that you can use. Um, it does require a bit of energy and a bit of time and a bit of affection and sort of trust to, to be present generally, at least the level of friendship, but that's a conscious technique you can use. So there's a couple others that I want to mention as well, just for completeness. It depends on what you and I agree with what you're saying. It depends on what you want to get out of the relationship. So I teach these classes to people that pay me. So if I'm if, if I'm getting paid to do this, I'm happy to spend half an hour of my day talking about this. I, I don't jump entirely on board with that because so often the thing that precedes that covert contract is a guy feeling like they're going to get some sort of value out of it, even if that value isn't articulated to themselves or articulated to the partner. It's like, well, you don't, you don't owe these people anything. You don't have to teach them. You know, you're doing this out of either the kindness of your heart or rationally because you're their friend and you want them to have a happy and successful relationship. I just, you know, there's always, there's always a price. Yeah, and that price can be, you know, the relationship. It can be whatever the fruits of the relationship are. But I know a lot of guys that would just jump in and teach or do this with somebody for hours and hours and hours and never ask anything in return. And that's that just devalues the currency. You know, it just totally devalues the currency. So that's one thing is that you can def you can teach them how to have boundaries. And this is really good for your girl at the moment because I guarantee a lot of the stress in her life is because she's a pushover. She just says yes to everything. And then she'll rationalize it later on. It's like, I had no choice or I didn't want to deal with the consequences. I was like, yes, you did. You had a choice. You just didn't right, feel like, right. you just didn't feel like you could make that choice. Maybe you weren't, maybe you right. didn't feel like you were supported enough. Maybe you didn't have the level of inner courage that was required to make that choice, but you right. always can choose. And yep. so choose. that technique of working out, um, of working out, practicing and rehearsing, helping them to say no to things they genuinely don't want and then being supportive and, and doing it as a rehearsal, like asking for things that aren't sexual, that are a little bit maybe ridiculous, that aren't too close to home, that aren't going to, you know, pick off any old scabs or make you feel genuinely rejected. But, you know, just play yeah, at it. Moral yeah, right, yeah. Right. You know, and if things come up, then it gives you an opportunity to practice that technique of, uh, uh, what act, uh, what just happened and um, what does that mean? The other cool thing about that technique is what just happened is something you can either do by yourself or you can do it with your partner. And if you're doing it with your partner, you'd be amazed at how often two people that just experience the exact same thing because oftentimes the meanings are tangled up in that statement and it takes a little bit of effort and a little bit of patience to untangle that from the objective statement of what just happened. So, you know, like, um, you know, her, her read of the situation with you might be that uh, an amazing guy just dumped me because I'm a piece of human garbage and I'll never be worthy of a great relationship with anyone. And your read of the situation might be, I'm trying so hard to help her, I just can't do any more. She's a great person and I adore her, but I just can't be a part of someone's life when they don't recognize how beautiful, intelligent, charismatic, powerful they are. And I can't stand to be around somebody that, that won't respect themselves as much as I respect and admire them. Right. Totally exactly. same experience, completely different read on the situation. Uh, so that's another conscious technique that I've used in the past. The other one that I think is really good for building kind of emotional literacy and also great for, for establishing trust and especially for practicing uh, negotiation and exerting boundaries. Uh, there's a very small one that I'll talk about really briefly called the, the idea of a micro scene. Uh, and I, I can't remember where I picked this up from, but uh, yeah. So someone basically said, look, hey, um, would it be okay if the whole scene was just, I bit you just one time. And then what you do is like, if they're, if they're, no, no, seriously. And they're okay with that. Then you say, is it okay if I bite you here? And then they say, okay. And then you kind of, the cool thing about biting is that you can start gentle and keep going until they kind of get close. Like you can feel when they're getting close to being like to, to it being too much. And then you back it off. Right? right. It's like when Mark talks about, and it's kind of how I refine my hypnosis process. Now I don't start with an induction 
and then take them into trance, do all the work, and then bring them out. What I do is I kind of use a, a warm-up trance. So I'll, I'll do the same process, but I'll basically double the amount of actual trances. I'll take them all the way into trance, give them powerful, fun, positive experiences, bring them out again, total time about 15 minutes, and then I'll say, now that you've had a great positive experience with trance, do you want to go again? Let's go again. Yeah. Close, but not quite. Close, but not quite. It's not fractionation. It's, it's setting expectations and giving them a positive experience for the first time because it's been my experience that, yes, I can get significant depth out of them within 20 minutes by fractionating them. You know, you take them into trance, you do your pre-talk, you um, remove any obstacles, you know, you do the whole process, and then you take them into trance, and that works really well. But what I've found works better for me is a kind of mini trance at the start where I do everything that I would normally do in the whole session. I do the pre-talk, I do the, you know, removing obstacles, I do the induction, I do the, you know, a bit of work, just, you know, elicit feelings of happiness and fun, bring them out of trance, give them, give them maybe a re-induction trigger or something, which I won't use as the whole induction for the second time, but I'll use that in accompaniment to that. And then they've, once they've had the experience of going into trance and it being totally positive, then the second time they go in, they always go way deeper. Yeah. Um, so they're two. They're actually two separate subjects, and I tried to link them, but I don't think it, I made that clear that they're two separate subjects. So a micro scene is just like I want to spank you for twenty seconds, or I want to. Like, there's nothing that really defines a micro scene, but they're very useful in that they build responsiveness and trust very deeply, very quickly. Um, what, like once you get them to consent to a very, very small example of this activity, then the next time that they do a scene with you, which will be minutes later, right. a few moments later, um, they'll actually have much more of an ability to respond to you. So it kind of mirrors what I, what I do now with my hypnosis sessions, but it's not the exact same thing. It's, it's basically the same thing, but the time frames are a little different. So that a micro scene, I think would be just a rough working definition would be less than less than a minute. You know, let so me massage. Sorry, micro scene, micro scene. Yeah. So a micro scene. I just want to make sure I understood what you just said. One thing. So when you do a micro scene with them, the next time you do a micro scene, a few minutes later, they're more responsive. Yes. In in a, in a very similar way that doing a mini hypnosis session mm -hmm. makes them go deeper the next time. Because of familiarity, because of experience, because of outcome. And yes. It's just, so you're, you're essentially, if I were to take this at a neurological level, you've lined up the neurology the first time. Mm -hmm. And so now that it's lined up, you can put more power through it because the network is stronger. Yes. God, it's so nice working with professionals, honestly. It's like, you explain everything once and they just get it, you know? That's exactly right. <laughs> It's, it's sort of like priming. It's, um, you, you just, you're, priming. Yeah, yeah, perfect. you're getting all the ducks in order. You're lining everything up. And then, you know, for the real work, which is in the, the second body of the, yeah, I, I really should map this out one day. I'll, I'll probably do a handout or something on, on the exact My. outline of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it needs to be because the smoking habits are so deeply habitualized and there's a lot of things working, um, to try to, to keep those patterns of behavior persistent when you want them to end and. Yeah, so you know, you definitely need to be able to create really deep, responsive trances in your subjects for stuff like smoking cessation to stick, which is also why it's such a good. I mean, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a steep learning curve, I think, for a lot of hypnotists because you can get away with doing all sorts of other work without the level of trance that you require to do smoking cessation. But if you can get the level of trance required at trance and responsiveness required to do smoking cessation then you can get the level of trance and requirement. Yeah, exactly. You can get the level of responsiveness out of them to do anything else. Um, but there's a couple more things that I really wanted to mention because they are really valuable. But I want to cover a, a couple other major ones. So setting boundaries as a man is really important. Um, and then, then teaching your partner how to set boundaries, both with you and with their professional life, often with women, because, you know, you and I are dating women that have jobs. Um, right. So you know, oftentimes they need to be able to set boundaries in their professional life and having someone sort of help them, not, not coach them through it, but just make it safe for them to have boundaries is really powerful and really useful and very simple and requires almost no effort from us, which is all good. 
Now, another technique that you can use is the three-minute game. Basically, it's a very simple little process that goes around and around and around and around. And so what happens is, there are four roles in any sexual encounter. Taking, giving, surrendering, and okay. receiving. Okay, and so what happens is, it's, it sounds a little complex, and I haven't really come up with a, a simple way of explaining this yet, so I'll do my best. Okay. The process itself is four steps. So what you do is you start, because you're the one that has more of a knowledge of the game than the other person does, and you say, what is something that I can do to you for your pleasure for three minutes? Or two minutes, depends on you know how long they want to go comfortable with. If you want to start gentle, I'd go with the two minutes. Go shorter, um, especially when you're starting out, I think is good. What is what is something that you would feel comfortable and you would desire that I do to you for your pleasure for three minutes? Then you okay. negotiate. Don't overanalyze it. Just go with me for right now. But so then you negotiate what it is. Uh, you know, massage is usually a great place to start. Can I give you a short, would you like a shoulder massage, right? Like sometimes you can prompt them into things they'd feel comfortable with, or they can suggest something. But the idea is that you both agree on something that you can do to them for their pleasure for three minutes. Something that you're willing to do. Something that you're willing to give. Right. And then you set a timer on your phone, and for three minutes, you do that thing. And you don't go outside right. that thing. Um, it's right. the command response cycle. You're pacing, and then you're leading. So expectations, expectations, yeah, all of these things, just, it's such a complex process. If you want to get, let me explain it first and then we can sort of rip it apart. Yeah. So then what happens is you say, okay, now what is something that you would feel comfortable with me doing to you for my pleasure for three minutes? So for example, um, I've just given her a shoulder rub for her. Now I want to do something to her, but this time it's for me. It's going to be for my pleasure. Okay. It's because it's what I want, not what she wants. So she, last session, she told me what she wanted. And this time, I'm going to suggest something from me. I'm going to say, I... Actually, to make it simpler, okay. So, for example, I want to do something to you for my pleasure. I really want to eat you out for three minutes. All right? That's a much more right. conventional example. And she says, right. I would love that. I am so comfortable with that. Lay back, spread my legs, you know. For three minutes, I eat her out because I'm doing that to her for my pleasure. But I suggest the activity because it's me that's doing it. And then, right. so what happens is after that three minutes is then you switch spots. She asks me, okay, what is something that I can do to you for your pleasure? So for three minutes. Number one, basically. Yeah, back. she switches positions okay. with you in, in, the, in the, the process. So you say something that you can do to me, I would really like it if you would suck my cock. Okay. And then she says, I would love to do that. I love sucking cock. I'm very comfortable with this. I 100% consent. And then you do that for three minutes. Then you're teaching people to be kind of deliberately selfish in bed. And this is another thing that's really empowering for submissive women in a good way. Because I want my partners to be selfish in bed. Because then I have more things I can use against them. You know, if, if they're <laughs> utterly addicted to my dick, then taking that away is powerful. Giving them more of it is powerful. It gives me so many more levers, and it also lengthens those levers that I can use. So I want my partners to be selfish in bed. The general rule is two questions, and then you switch roles. What is something that right. I can do to you for your pleasure for three minutes or two minutes? And then once mm-hmm. they've done that, negotiated, consented, and then done the exercise or the activity. Now I would like to do something to you for my pleasure for two minutes or three minutes. This is what I have in mind. Would that be okay with you? Yes. Okay. And then you switch roles. Yeah, you want to, do you want to try and keep negotiation to a minimum? Just start with simple things like, can I give you a massage? Can I undress you? Can I give you a lap dance? Can I strip for you? Can I, um, oh, there's this one that I had a girl ask me for once that it still just tugs at my heartstrings. She said, can you please pet me 
I want to put my head in your lap. And can you just pet me and say nice things to me for three minutes? And I just went, <laughs> of course. So, yeah, that's one of the ideas. Just some ideas, a bit of a grab bag to get you started. But the three-minute game, she has a little PDF printout. Make sure that you grab the A4 size one if you're in Australia or the letter size one if you're in America because the paper sizes are slightly different, apparently. And print it out, flip it over, follow the game through. But the great thing about this is it teaches you to have skill and familiarity with all four of the roles that you can take in bed. So most people are really good at one or two of the four. For example, most submissives are really good at giving. And sometimes some submissives are really good at receiving. But oftentimes some submissives are really terrible at receiving. They don't know what to do with themselves. So, oh, the other thing is that after you um, negotiate, you say thank you and express gratitude. And then after you actually do the activity, you say thank you and express gratitude. And if your person, if your person has a problem with the idea of being selfish, don't mention the word selfish. But what you're really doing them to them is you're training them to be more, much dramatically more capable of exerting their own self boundaries and agency in bed, dramatically more confident. And so reinforcing the the behavior that you want is good. So what this does is it teaches dominants who have difficulty receiving or surrendering to something. Like the idea of surrendering is something that you would think is antithetical to being a dominant, but because it's not practiced often by a lot of dominants, they're not particularly good at it. And so it makes it hard for them to, to do things like receive worship, which might be something that your submissive really wants to do and that you might really want to do, but you might struggle with the idea of, of surrendering to someone else's lavishing attentions on you here you get a chance to practice for two minutes in a risk you know in a risk minimal environment with someone that wants you and loves you and supports you and you know and then we'll thank you for the privilege and the pleasure and it starts to build these positive associations between giving receiving taking and surrendering so at some point during the process she will take you i want to do something to you for my pleasure and I want you to be okay with that. And as a guy, that can be a little bit scary sometimes. As a woman, that can be very uncomfortable for the to just bring up the idea. Often, very, very often, submissive women will struggle with the idea of taking, but they need to become fluent in that language in order to right. round what the most valuable benefit of this exercise. It rounds out their sexual vocabulary it rounds out their sexual rep yeah rounds out their sexual repertoire repertoire is a much better way of putting it sometimes women are really good at at giving and receiving sometimes submissives are really good at giving and receiving sometimes men are really good at taking and and um and giving and and, you know it's it's most people fall somewhere on the idea of that they have one or two of those strengths out of a four but rarely does a person have all four and if you have a better idea of what it feels like to be taken by your girl in a way that you consent to in a safe and private way, then you have a better idea of what she feels like or wants when you take her. You don't have to do this forever. And you can mix right. this in with your sex. I often use it as a kind of uh, entree. So I'll play this game with someone for 15 minutes. And then at some point, the timer will get switched off and then we will have amazing sex. But it's a fantastic to see the energy flow back and forth, the sense of responsibility shift, and to be to feel yourself being rounded out in your experiences. I'm really good at taking, and I'm really good at giving. I'm not, well, I didn't used to be as good at receiving, and I was absolutely terrible at surrendering. I wanted to right. surrender, but I didn't feel safe enough to do it. Practicing doing this, practicing having someone ask you, I really want to suck your dick and I really want to do it for me. I'm like, great. No responsibility on me. I just have to lie. No, seriously. I just have to lie here and enjoy this and feel whatever I feel. The other thing that's important to emphasize is that whatever response happens is okay. So you're not driving for a particular response. You're, and this is why when you're asking for things or you're suggesting ideas for the negotiation phase, is you don't really want to emphasize anything that's based on an outcome, more on something that you can do for three straight minutes. Like, I want to make you come for three straight minutes. 
not the best idea because you know performance anxiety it's outcomes focused yeah Yeah. but it's more like i want to do something to you for three minutes i want to do something to you for your pleasure i want to do something to you for my pleasure and then you switch it around the other great thing about this is because it controls down the variables and it's very explicit in the way that it switches roles and the way that it uh, assigns responsibilities so i am taking now or I am giving, which is why it's not, impo- it's not important to get caught up in the roles themselves. It's more who's doing right. what at what time. Right now, I mm-hmm. am doing something to you for my pleasure. Then you'll be doing something to me for my pleasure. And then you'll be doing something to me for your pleasure. And then we'll switch around again. So it's by breaking that process down and by slowing it down, it accomplishes a lot of what we were talking about before uh, when it came to the gap between stimulus and response. It's the same sort of process, but in bed. You're breaking down that flow, because in ordinary sex, both people are giving, taking, responding, receiving, surrendering all at once. But by controlling that process within a structure, within a framework, right now, you're receiving. Your job is to respond in whatever way you respond. Not in whatever way you feel like you want to respond. In just whatever response happens. happens. You're not? Yes. And whatever response they give you is the right response. So I find it best not to emphasize intensity or strength of response. It's more just whatever you feel is the right thing. I often use disassociative language, like the response will happen through you. Simply allow the response to happen through you. You are not having the experience. It can be sometimes useful for people that are difficult that have difficulty accepting responsibility for being worshipped or served or um, g- given to. So you know you just adoration. Em- emphasize, yeah, emphasize that the response is just occurring naturally within your body automatically, and you are not responsible for your response right now because I am giving you this experience. Don't even pay any attention to it. So those are some other conscious tools that you can use. So the three-minute game, exercises in setting boundaries and practicing saying no, the exercise of actually working through your partner uh, with uh, an exercise to get to the point where you escalate something to the point where she says no and you thank her for that no and then you switch the roles around. Those are all practical, conscious things that you can do to help someone that is having difficulty with their self-esteem to improve that. Always under the umbrella of you are not responsible for their life. And within the framework of authority that you've established by virtue of the nature of the relationship that you have with them and the contract that you both have agreed to or the agreement that you've both made together, which should always be explicit, written, uh, and clear in the areas that you are going to take responsibility over and how long you're planning on taking responsibility over them for and what to do. I mean, this is why contracts are a whole separate subject and I'll do an audio on them shortly. So things like term, things like contracts for training, the overall structure of a relationship, you know, what a timeline looks like, what a reasonable timeline looks like for all of this. This is all stuff that I've come up with in the last six months that I plan on doing an audio recording on at some point and putting it up on the website. But to sort of review, we talked about a lot of the stuff that we can do unconsciously. So the first thing that's important is to get a feel for the direction that you want the relationship and what you want from this, the way you want it to go, to get a feel for the way that you want this to go and from what you want from this. So 500 to 1,000 words on that is is required. And then you can use that to form into an outcome. And then you can set milestones and key objectives and begin to train in required behaviors, that sort of thing. Depending on the level of authority, because all of this is filtered through what actual authority you have. If you're a boyfriend, then you have that level of authority. If you're a dominant, then you have that level of authority. But always constantly emphasizing, even as her dominant, that you are not responsible for her life outside of the areas that you have explicitly taken responsibility over. And that she is responsible for her life. Everything else. And that you will help her if she asks you to, and that's one of the conscious techniques we'll review in a second, but that you need to help her practice that, but um, you're not responsible for her outcomes, only she is responsible for her outcomes. You will be her guide out of the wilderness, 
but she has the has to be the one that takes the steps. So we talked about the worth recordings, the worthy recordings from Rick Smith Hypnosis. To raise the sense of deservedness and how key and integral that is to everything else that comes afterwards. We talked about the winning recordings, the other ones that he has on how to win at everything. That he has on that and how important they are to to setting positive expectations that things will go well. That goes a tremendous way towards overcoming that negative self-talk that is so damaging and harmful. Uh, We talked about how the best book on an empowering personal philosophy is The Courage to Be Disliked, and how you can buy that on Amazon for like 10 bucks. It's very cheap. The audiobook's excellent. Um, What else did we talk about? So the other thing we talked about was the meditation app Aware, um, which is on iOS and Android, and it's just Aware, Mm -hmm. A-W-A-R-E. The symbol is a little circle, a blue circle and a red circle together. Fantastic. Mindfulness meditation. We talked about the resilience project uh, and the idea of resiliency and the idea of stoic philosophy as well. And a good text on that is uh, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations or Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Probably a little heavy for most women as it's very masculine centered, but there's ideas in there that can be easily translated. It's the idea of that, that bad things will happen to you. It's inevitable. That's just life. It's how you deal with them. And that dovetails beautifully into um, that gap between stimulus and response and those two questions right. that we talked about. So the two questions were, well, what just happened What just happened is the objective part and what does it mean is entirely subjective. So the idea is to separate out that stimulus and response very explicitly using those two questions. What just happened? is where you want to try and get as objective as possible. A thing happened. A relationship ended. I broke up with her. I got hit by a car. I was diagnosed with cancer. Right? What does that mean? And that's when you start to try and articulate out loud, not in front of a mirror, but articulate out loud the meanings that you are going to make from that. And then you try and kind of exert some energy or a reframe to shift those meanings into something positive. It means that I can be an inspiration to others. It means that this is a time to re-examine my life and where I'm really going in my career. It means that now I can travel the world. It means that, you know, now I know what I don't want in a relationship. That can be a bit of a trap. Do you want to to try and keep it positive? But those two questions, what just happened and what does that mean? These are, this is sort of shifting into the conscious exercises. I think that was the first of the conscious things we talked about. Absolutely. And, and choose, yes, choosing as a choice, not choosing as a choice. I've been a victim of that many times. I've let that happen, unfortunately, many times. Oh, uh, sorry. Let me, let me correct you on that. The, um, the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, is not a manifesto for the MKP project. They're totally separate things. Yes. I, oh, you, you reminded me about that one, actually, because it's, it's very BDSM specific. But Karen Nurture for the Submissive has a particularly empowering personal philosophy for submissives, which is an excellent thing to build on top of that that foundation of uh, the book, uh, The Courage to Be Disliked. I can't speak to the sequel as I haven't read it. There's another book called The Courage to Be Happy. Same authors, same sort of psychological principles. It's a direct sequel. I haven't read it yet. So, Yes, Um, no, we we talked about some of the pitfalls. Yeah, there's like the exercise of them having to process to figure out what it is that they need so that they can ask for it. And then we talked about um, some of the tools they have for that. For them. The fetish journal right. was one of them. The fe- I was going to say the fetish journal, yeah. Um, and the idea that our emotions are our, well, each person's emotions are is that person's responsibility. Yes. And how you how you deal Not with them else. is that is your right. responsibility. Right. And we talked about the fetish um, journal, and then we talked about... Um, setting boundaries. Let's see, I've got a note here. Hang on. Yeah. Uh, setting boundaries with them. And then also teaching them how to set boundaries for themselves. Yes. Two different aspects of boundary setting. Then you talked about the no game. Yeah, getting to um, know. And, and then there's the... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So that's another one as well. It's uh, an excellent book on... The voice book. It's an excellent book on um, yeah. vocal exercises for people that use their voices often. And there's a, a yeah, CD that comes with it. And you do the exercises on the CD in accompaniment with the book. Okay. She has a full half an hour in real time guided walkthrough of a vocal warm up that I use 
all the time. Before sessions, before I have phone calls with people, when I'm walking to the bus stop sometimes. Oh yes, Dita Von Tees, yeah. Um, and it was on how to do your makeup the same way that she does. Oh, okay, I thought this was this, that book. That's a different book then. I think she has two books. All right. Or, or Caroline right, mentioned so to me once that there was a weird thing that, that she had a book that was, it was one book on one side. This is why it really struck in my mind. It was one book on one side and then it was another book on the other side. Like on one side was the vanilla side of things, like the vanilla burlesque stuff. And on the other side of it, and it was the two books in one, basically you flipped it over. And the idea was it was a coffee table book. So you could flip it over depending on, you know, which conversation that you wanted to have with your partner. Feminism has sort of made it so that men still have all these expectations placed on them for their behavior towards women, but women don't really have any expectations placed on them for their behavior towards men. So it's a bit like right. if you had a contract with someone and all of a sudden, not only did they decide to just rub out their half of the contract, but they were still trying to hold you accountable to your half of the contract. Well, just ask yeah. the feminists how happy they are. It's, it's a self, it's a, it's a, I want to say it's a self-destructive cycle, right? Because what happens there is women can't find something in the world. So they somehow think that going out and behaving in a way that creates less of that thing occurring in the future is the best way to act. If, if a feminist gets her hooks into a, a, a young boy, like if this is your mom talking and your dad's not in the picture, you know, she can have 10 straight years of 24 seven brainwashing hooked into this kid before before anything else even happens before that kid has to then undo all of that shit no honestly i've learned i learned so much from her and it's i don't think there's a negative perception against submissives educating their dominance i actually think that it's, it's much more the other way i think too many dominants take the things that their submissives say about them too seriously and it's there's a lot of topping from the bottom that i do see in relationships but is an incredible person and i learned so much from her i have learned so much from her um and what you were just talking about is one of many examples of where i was emotionally caught up well not not many examples of this but one where i was caught up in this particular case too emotionally close to this to the topic uh, at hand and couldn't really see the yeah, well, she was she was just not emotionally involved in this in the person full stop. So, you know, she was able to give me a sense of objectivity. But yeah, I really like everything that you just said there. The 